What's up, Zach Oates here, author, entrepreneur, and customer relationship guru. Welcome to Give an Ovation, growth strategies for restaurants and retailers, where we find industry leaders to share their secrets to grow your business. This podcast is sponsored by Ovation, the actionable guest feedback tool that works on or off premise and is easy, real time, and actually drives revenue. Learn more at OvationUp.com. Welcome to another edition of Give and Ovation. Now, I am really excited about our guest today. I know I say that a lot, but this guest is someone who is just a legend in the industry, Blaine Hurst. Now, if that name doesn't mean anything to you, then you're probably new to this industry. Uh, so sit back and take a deep breath because I'm going to go, I'm going to cover 40 years and 40 seconds here. Blaine was the CIO of Boston Market, the president of Papa John's, owner of Fresh Fire Barbecue, Restaurant Advisory Council at Google, president and CEO of Panera. And now amongst a bunch of other stuff, he's the executive board member at Hero Bread and a partner at the Shepherd Hotel. Uh, He also was inducted into the Fast Casual Hall of Fame. Blaine, I know that I missed so many things there, but uh, is what I said accurate? That's accurate. That's actually quite accurate. Uh, it's been a it's been a jury journey. I think it was my second career though, because I started out in tech, right? So at this point, started in tech, switching to restaurants in the early '90s was a bit of a change, but I've loved it ever since. Love the industry. Well, before we get to before we get into the restaurant side of things, I just want to take a minute and have you explain a little bit about the Shepherd Hotel because it is so cool. And I was so impressed by what you're doing there. And, um, you know, just, just blown away, uh, by the fact that you truly do live the three phases of life. You know, there's the, the learn, the earn and the return, and you're doing such a good job at that return phase that I I think that we want to pause and just make sure that deserves some airtime. Well, thank you. You know, it's it's one of those things that a buddy of mine reached out to me at one point and said, we want to do something like the Shepherd Hotel and the restaurant there, the Delish Sisters, which is where I spent most of my time. Uh, The Shepherd Hotel is in Clemson, South Carolina. It is built very close to the the campus of Clemson. I am a uh, I was an advisor, but I spent most time in the restaurant. So the hotel employs people with intellectual disabilities. About 40 percent or so of the staff are intellectually disabled. But at the same time, we built a restaurant in that hotel called the Delish Sisters. And again, with a target of about 40 percent of the staff being intellectually disabled. What was really amazing to me as I reached out to friends in the industry and said, can you help? I mean, this is a, an amazing restaurant, an amazing cause. And, and our friends, my friends at Middleby Marshall, uh, my friends at uh, Cuisine Solutions out of DC, they sit down and help design the restaurant, design the food for the restaurant. Uh, the cuisine chefs actually helped my our team with the actual men, menu itself and, and gave advice and counsel as we went through it. Pretty amazing. Uh, Edward Don, Steve Don, basically continues to give us our our small wares at at cost. Toast gave us a special deal. Our friends at Patronics helped out an amazing amount and provided software for free. So we launched this with a mission to have an impact on people's lives. And I will tell you, just looking at it, looking at staying there, being a part of the university there, uh, I've just been blown away. 
And I can't encourage anyone that wants to see an amazing model of, of how do you employ people with intellectual disabilities in a restaurant. Uh, we, you should find a way to visit there. And give us the town one more time. Clemson, the football school, Davos Sweeney. Uh, Davos actually an investor in the hotel and restaurant project. So uh, Clemson, awesome. South Carolina. And, and uh, we're, we're excited to get launching too, Blaine. I mean, we have, um, you know, obviously as, as we talked about recently, we are excited to help out however we can. And uh, I appreciate give, that. Give, uh, give you guys ovation for free with there, because we know that with all of this, it's so critical to not just be doing good, but to make sure that that good is getting to the guest experience, right? Well, without an amazing guest experience, no matter how good we're doing, people will come and go, as you well know, people will come and go, well, that's really nice. They may even leave a nice review, but if they don't have great food, they don't have great service, they don't feel taken care of, they'll only come once, maybe twice to give us because we got a special mission, but it'll stop at that unless the guest has an amazing experience. And I know that's what you're all about. Exactly. Now, speaking of that, and speaking of that, that loop, I mean, you've been a part of some giant businesses and, you know, by the way, secretly Boston market is my favorite uh, when it comes to like the sweet potatoes, nobody does sweet potatoes better than Boston market. And sorry, grandma, if you're listening, um, but I mean, you know, the market Papa John's looking at Panera, especially, I mean, look at all these giant brands. How do you, it's so easy for leaders to get out of the loop, right? It's so easy for people just to, to tell them the things that they want to hear. How do you keep your finger on the pulse of so many locations of such large, complicated businesses when you're, you know, you're not in the stores? You know, it's, it's, there, there are a couple of factors, and I think it's always a challenge. The more restaurants you have, the more units you have, particularly multi-unit retail or restaurants, the bigger the challenge because you want people to tell you the truth, you know, but but you know it's getting filtered. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will tell you, no matter what kind of good, amazing people will still filter if it protects their personal interests. Why? Because they're also trying to make a living. So how do you get direct feedback with consumers at scale? And I think... The number one thing for me is you have to purposely build feedback loops. It is not something that you can just take for granted or read your reviews online, because I will tell you that a lot of that is bullshit because you either get the really angry customer or the very positive customer. And I don't know how you learn from either one of those because the angry customer is typically a really bad something happened for that one customer but to find learning that allows you to constantly improve, I don't know how you do that with just angry and amazing experiences. And so I think you've got to build feedback systems that provide feedback constantly about all, all experiences. And yeah, honestly, it's one of the things I love about your, what you're doing is because it's simple. It re- you respond easily. I, you know, I can click and be, you know, give some feedback and get going. And that gives me so much information. A great program we initiated at Panera, which you say, well, how does Panera do it? Because it was a scale and it was before Ovation. So how does how did Panera do it? We actually built a system of feedback via email, via text, you know, multiple ways. But out of the, you know, we had uh, about 2,000 restaurants, 2,100 restaurants when I was there. 
we would get somewhere between 200 and 250,000 feedback responses per month. So over a hundred responses per store. Why was that? We use that then to help fine tune our internal processes into fine tune our menu, fine tune that individual store because we had amazing feedback on the store. We actually built that into the manager's bonus program. Why? Because it was so important to hear from the guests unadulterated. And I think that's a hard part. The other thing we did, and I did even personally, is spend a lot of time in the restaurants. You say, well, Blaine, how can you do that? It's like, you know, and when I say spend time in the restaurants, we have a lot of these, oh, let's just do a flyby. Let's go in and shake the manager's hand. Great job. Next, next. I I typically spent at least one to two uh, days a year, and in the early days, a lot, but one to two days a year working in the restaurant, behind the line, talking directly to guests, trying to get feedback. In addition, the first year I was there, I lived in the restaurant. So, so kind of like an uh, undercover, but not very undercover boss type thing. Correct. Not, and I wasn't, and people knew who I was. It wasn't like it was, but if you create an environment, even in that individual restaurant, where the team feels like the feedback is not about how bad we are, but the team feels that that feedback is about how do we all get better, and you purposely create that environment, then I think you can start to change perception because that story gets broadcast. Yeah. Uh, the CEO or the president or whomever was in my store, and man, we had a we had a crash of people, bus unloaded, if things were insane and it was a mess and. But, you know, Blaine just went up, said, OK, now, how do we do it better next time? What did we learn versus you're an idiot? <laughs> and so, so often we treat feedback like pound, pound, pound. I'm like, no, if the leader treats it as how we pound our stores, you're screwed. It will never work because they will always protect. They have, you've given them no choice but to protect. That's a really interesting concept of people aren't turning things because they're because they're trying to hurt you because they're trying to screw you over because they're trying to give you misinformation, but it's self-preservation. That's I, I think oh, that's a very humanizing. Yeah. I think that's a very humanizing way to look at it. and so, you know, circumventing that by just getting it right. The sword is a really, uh, really powerful and obviously something that we strongly believe in at ovation. Um, now you, you've been through a lot though. I mean, in your leadership, you know, you have been at the helm in some very turbulent waters. And so my question for you is, if if you open up any newspaper, open up any website, you're going to see that the press is constantly talking about this looming recession. And so my question is, how do we, as restaurant owners, how do we prepare for that? What, what are things that we should be doing now to get ready for something that we don't even know what it's going to be like. Well, I, my answer is always bury your head in the sand and forget about it. No, I don't. <laughs> no. Uh, no, that would not be a very good response. But there are days. That's what you want to do. It's just, oh, well, whatever's next. Yeah. And I think the truth is you can't control everything. So control what you can control. However, I think you have to prepare for disruption. Create a resilient organization is an old term. I don't know if they still use it in business books. But prepare for disruption before it occurs. And when I say that, we often do a little of this, a little of that. But I'm suggesting we want to think completely. We, we miss so much because we react to the now 
versus mm -hmm. building resiliency, building ways to handle disruption. You don't know what that disruption is going to be. It could be it could be a, a a war breakout between Ukraine and the and Russia. It could be COVID. wait, Blaine. It could be. You, you're talking crazy. That stuff like I that know, would this never is insane happen. Stuff. A, a pandemic that shuts down restaurants for weeks on end. Okay, uh, but but let's get back happened. to re, let's get back to reality. Blaine. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Recession could it happen? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it probably you know who knows. I, I read it the stuff, but I think what it is all about is about preparation for mm. disruption. Mm -hmm. I suggest that we want to create a culture of what I call a culture of dissatisfaction which is we are never satisfied with where we are. Now we have to make priority decisions, but we are never satisfied. It is never good enough. And you say, well, that's how a CEO should think. No, I suggest that's how an organization should think. That's how every individual in the organization should think. And if our systems don't allow us to extract that from the organization, we will not be prepared. And I also think that the, the role of the senior leader, whether it's the CEO, the president, whatever, has got to be the one who is, un, who is, who is able, because they're the only ones that can unleash the sort of idea of culture of dissatisfaction where we're getting better all the time. We're never satisfied. We're always working. We're always striving. And oh, by the way, we're always planning for, even if it doesn't occur, we're trying to build resiliency against disruption, not a specific thing. Because a specific thing will never, I mean, that probably won't occur that way. Anyway, so I actually think it's about doing that. And then when it occurs, embracing it and say, oh, yeah, that's plan B, prime, second, whatever. <laughs> uh, but because you thought through if, if we have to close our restaurants for two, a month, of course, that would never happen. If we have to close our restaurants for a month, uh, how do we prepare? How do you think Panera did drive a uh, uh, drive-by pickup? in all stores so quickly. You think they just somehow magically created all that software in like two weeks, three weeks? No. Right? I mean, look at Chili's, one of our advisors who was the, the brains behind It's Just Wings. Everyone's like, wow, Chili's launched It's Just Wings so quickly. No, that was no. a year in planning at least, right? Yeah. This was, there was so much planning and preparation that went into that. And did it accelerate the last few months? Yeah, but it didn't start when the problems they were building exactly. resiliency. And and I and I love that you said that. I, I want to give two quick uh viewpoints on that on that uh how'd you put it? You, you, we want to be uh, a culture of dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. Or... Yeah, I I love that. And there's a uh, a religious leader who talks about it being, you know, being a man of faith. I I love this viewpoint of how do we improve ourselves spiritually? And he talks about divine discontent, right? Yes, same idea. We exactly. And and when I worked at a ad agency, my first job, they had up on the wall one of their tents was there is always a better way, right? And this is this, these all three of these things are getting to the same point, which is great. It's yes, we can a hundred percent celebrate the things that we're doing, the things that are going well. But at the end of the day, we always need to know that we should be a little bit dissatisfied, a little bit discontent, understand that there's a better way and be looking for that. And that needs to go, you know, a fish stinks from the head first, right? And for good or for bad. And we need to, uh, from the very top to the very, you know, the dishwasher or first time employees in training, 
get people to understand that this is the way we do things temporarily right. because we're, we're waiting on all everyone here to help us come up with the better way. Right. And, right. and I think that's a, that's a really powerful. And I think in large organizations, it's difficult because how do you filter all that back? And we create all these complex systems and we'll suggest it goes back to spend time in your restaurants, yeah. talk to your teams, talk to your customers, look at the feedback you're getting Somehow as a CEO, as a president, I should just be, people should just present to me the answers, right? <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. It really doesn't. And so I think you've got to be, you have to enable yourself, you have to, you enable the organization by being in the front line. You enable an organization so that when things are broken and you own it, own it. I mucked that one up, guys. Yeah. Next. Uh, because nobody wants to change because they think it's your idea. Well, if your idea is sacrosanct, it'll never change, even if it's a dumb idea. So you have to laugh at yourself. You have to be vulnerable. And the hard thing for leaders to comprehend, in my mind, is how and hard to execute, too. We may comprehend it, but it's hard to execute because of that. We're taught to not be vulnerable. The way you get to the top is be a hard ass and drive. Yeah. Uh, right. But the way that you lead a team or an organization is by listening constantly and improving constantly and prioritizing. You got to prioritize because there's so much I could work on and I've only got so much time, treasure, talent to invest in it. So how do I do that without uh, how do I create that environment? But the, and then say no, 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 no. Yes. Yeah. I, I love that time treasure talent. That's a great way to, to look well, at I, it. I use it all the time. It's one of my sort of Blaine-isms is I can invest time, calendar time, if you think about it that way. I can invest dollars, treasure, or I can invest my top people because we all know we have amazing people. We have good people. Uh, but if I invest a lot of, t- I, I, those are the three things I can invest. I can't invest anything else. Love that. Um, now, another Blainism that I, I want to end on is your concept of something you shared with me a while ago when we first met, and I've loved it. Run the race with joy. Tell me a little more about that. You know, it's a very personal story, but I have a son who's intellectually disabled, and you know, he he was in high, went to a normal high school. He was integrated in some of the classes and not in some of the others. But he wanted to participate in sports. And the coach was like, well, yeah, he we, he can be a manager, but David wanted to participate. So talking to the coach, he said, you know, cross country is a non-cut sport So in high school. So let David run. I'm like, he can't run 3.2 miles up and down hills. But uh, <laughs> I, can't, I don't know. You know that. I don't, most humans can't do that anymore. Uh, certainly not most Americans. The uh, So I said, but I said, okay. So he started running with the cross-country team. Uh, I'll never forget the first race. I was in Boston uh, at the time. I got, I got a call from my wife, said, David has just finished his first race. I go, that's amazing. Uh, what was the time? She said, well, it wasn't official, but because the kids came back and helped him finish. It was a bit of a movie-type-esque finish where the kids on his team went back and helped him cross the finish line. It couldn't be counted because you, know, you can't do that. But it didn't matter. He crossed and people were excited. So the season went on. He ran the race a couple more times. 
he ran the race every weekend and he finished the race a couple more times. His personal best was 45 minutes. He wanted to go to regionals. Regionals, regionals are some of the top runners. A lot of people don't bother to go because they know they're not going to finish high enough. But David wanted to run. So David's PB was about 45, 46 minutes. The top runners were running in 19, 20, 21 minutes. And I'm like, I'm not so sure about this. My wife goes, Blaine, that's your pride talking. David wants to run the race. Let him run the race. I said, okay, you right. You win. So he, uh, I, we go out to the track or go out to the course. I hear the gun crack. He runs big open field before they get to the woods. And he's about halfway across and there's nobody else in front of him because they're already in the woods. And so I'm like, I'm kind of thinking inside, oh, well, I hope, hope he gets it done. I hope he finishes, whatever. Hope he's okay. He runs into the, he gets into the woods. We go to the finish line. It's all set up. We start to see the first runner comes across in 18 minutes. And I'm like, whoa, by the time they get to 25, 26 minutes, there's nobody right crossing the finish line. And so they begin to take down the barriers that kept the crowd out along the sides take down, you know, the finish line apparatus. And I hear a crackle on the, the, the uh, guy that's running the race is uh, walkie. He goes, he said, I hear this crackle says runner still on course. And so I'm like, that's David. And this guy, super nice. He restretches the finish line. He restretches the barriers. He has oh, pulled cool. all the people back. And I see, you know, it's 30 minutes. 35 minutes, 40 minutes, about 43 minutes in, I see David come out of the trees. I see him see all of these people. He's all of a sudden, he's, I mean, not all of a sudden, he's smiling. His legs are pumping. He pumps on out across the field. We see him coming. Everybody's cheering him and he breaks the finish line. And he is so excited. We're in tears. We're hugging him. I go over to the the guy that the the finish line guy. I said, "Thank you so much for setting everything up again. This was so special. What an amazing day for David, for the rest of us." And he looks at me and goes, "Like that's just what we do. You gotta love <laughs> that. People <laughs> who care enough. That's just what we do." When we I go back to the gator driver because there's a gator there. And I go back to this guy and I say, sir, I just want to thank you for following my son throughout the course. And this guy probably worked at the school. I don't know. He didn't look, you know, like one of the professionals, uh, if you will. And I looked at him and I said, just thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Following my son. He looked up at me with a tear in his eye. And he said, sir, you don't understand. You don't have to thank me. He said, I watched your son run this race. He fell. He got up. He's bloody. His knees are bloody. He looks back at me, smiles, and waves. He keeps running. But David's <laughs> blind in one eye. I mean, he can't see the roots on the ground. He's oh. stumbling as he's going through there, and he sees people along the course, and he's waving at them every time he sees another person with a big smile on his face. When he came out of those trees, he he was smiling. He was happy. I could tell he was so excited because he kept looking back at me and waving. He said, sir, your son shared joy along the way with everyone he met. Sir, your son ran the race with joy. Hmm. 
And I'm thinking as a how I want to live my life. We're going to have bumps. We're going to have bruises. We're going to fall down. We're going to skin our knees. We're going to face uncertainties in our life. What I know is that if we run the race with joy, we'll find a way to the other side. So running the race with joy is how I want to live. It's not how I live every day, but it is how I want to live my life for the rest of my life. It's so powerful, Blaine. I appreciate you sharing that. And I think that that is something where we we can all do with a little more joy in our lives. And we could all do with being a little more joyful and sharing that joy with others. And you have this great compounding effect where when you're happy, someone else is happy. 100%. And that makes you happy because someone else is happy, right? 100%. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, well, you're not going to be happy every day. I'm not going to be happy every day. I get frustrated. I get angry, whatever. But there's a Joy is about what's inside and how you process. And, you know, being a spiritual guy myself, joy comes from in here, not from what the world imposes on me. And I think it is so important that however you worship or however you connect, having finding that internal peace, that internal joy that allows you to share that, that's when you make a difference in the world. Love that. Well, Blaine, truly appreciate your time today. Appreciate you joining us on Give Innovation. Uh, I'm excited to have you on. Open invitation for you to come back. We've got lots more to talk about. And, uh, you know, I I know people can find you on on LinkedIn. Um, Anywhere else that people should be looking for Blaine Hurst? Uh, I don't really have my own website or anything because that's not where I'm at in life. I think the biggest, the, the easiest place is LinkedIn or um, do a Google search. There's only like four Blaine Hurst in the United States. Okay. So. <laughs> well, Blaine, for being a legend who is as awesome as I ever hoped you would be, thank you uh, for coming on, Give an Ovation, and today's ovation goes to you. Thanks, Blaine. Thank you. Glad you're with us today, and thank you. Thank you to the risk takers, the troublemakers, the crazies who are keeping this world clothed and fed. You're the ones who deserve an ovation. Again, this podcast was sponsored by Ovation. To see how we can help you grow your business, go to OvationUp.com. Don't forget to subscribe. And as always, remember to give someone in your life an ovation today.